0: Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, I want to do some quick housekeeping stuff before we get started with this week's episode. I've been very haphazard with releasing episode the past month or so. Uh, Work has been insanely busy for me, and I haven't had the brain capacity or time to devote to research as much as I normally would like to. I think starting out with releasing episodes every week was a bit ambitious on my part, and I haven't really been able to give every episode the attention I would like and be able to add more content for each episode to Twitter and Instagram. So I'm probably going to be going forward in the future every two weeks until my life gets a little bit more under control. My semester ends this week, so or not this week, next week. So I should be more able to do research and whatnot. Um... But other than that, yeah, it's going to be every two weeks. Um, And I'm hoping to have super good content for you guys regularly. But that's besides the point. Let's get into this week's episode. We are back onto our tornado season after a couple week break. We've had fires twice now and a blackout. And so now we're going to go back to tornadoes. Uh, This week, we're not going to talk about just one tornado or an outbreak of tornadoes we're going to talk about a super outbreak of tornadoes. Now I know what you're thinking. What's the difference between a regular outbreak and a super outbreak? Basically, it's the number of tornadoes that occurs. A tornado outbreak is generally anywhere from 6 to 10 tornadoes. A super outbreak is, well, a lot more than that. The super outbreak we're going to talk about this week was a whopping 360 tornadoes in total. No, that's not a joke. It is actually 360 tornadoes. It's not like a tornado goes around 360 degrees. I'm not that funny. It was 359 tornadoes in the United States, one in Canada, all from the same system. Now, before we get into the details of this disaster, I wanted to do another quick crash course on what a tornado is and how they form. I did this on the first tornado episode, but I figure it's been two months since that episode released, so I'll just go over it again for the new listeners or anyone who just wants a refresher or forgot. So, a tornado is a violently rotating column of air that is in contact with both the ground and a cloud. This is important. It is not a tornado if it is not touching the ground. That is only a funnel cloud. So every tornado was a funnel cloud, but not every funnel cloud becomes a tornado. Most tornadoes are formed from a supercell storm. They occasionally form in other storms, but we're going to avoid those because they're not usually the violent type. The type that we're truly interested here at Disastrous History. A supercell storm forms along a dry line when a warm, moist air mass collides with a cool or hot dry air mass. The warm, moist air rises to the atmosphere because it's more buoyant and then storms form. That's how you get storms. Now, wind shear comes into play. Wind shear is when different winds at different levels are blowing in either direction or at different speeds in different directions. This causes a horizontal rotating air mass. The best way to describe this is you take a ball of Play-Doh in your hand and you start rolling your hands back and forth over the Play-Doh. It eventually makes a horizontal tube. Then, back to the storm... The updraft from the warm, moist air rising up takes this horizontal rotating air mass and makes it a vertical rotating air mass, thus giving us our supercell storm. Supercell storms all have rotation. Which, cool, but that doesn't explain how we get the tornado. So we've got this giant rotating air mass up in the air, right? As the winds in the storm pick up, that rotation gets faster and faster and more and more aggressive. This starts to make the vertically rotating column of air elongate. So, imagine our roll of Play-Doh, that you're rolling back and forth in your hands. You've turned your hands so the Play-Doh is facing up and down, so your hands are vertical, and you're still going back and forth. And so you start to roll your hands faster and faster, and you squeeze a little bit. What happens? The Play-Doh starts to elongate and come out at the bottom of your hands due to gravity. That is... The best and most simple way to explain what happens to form a tornado from a supercell. The wind moves faster and faster, and the column of air elongates out the bottom until it touches the ground and forms a tornado. So, tornadoes can range in size from about a mile wide to just a few feet wide. It all depends. But greater width does not always mean stronger tornado. Sometimes tornadoes can be a mile wide and cause a huge amount of damage only because the tornado is just so wide. How do we gauge the relative strength of a tornado? Currently, we use what is called the Enhanced Fujita Scale. The scale is based upon observable damage in the path of a tornado. So after the tornado has gone through, they go back, compare what the damage is, and they have a rating scale of what that damage is based on construction and what was used in the construction, how the buildings were constructed, uh, what type of damage is done to trees, to the ground cars things like that it used to be called the Fujita scale but the powers that be decided the regular old Fujita scale was too broad and needed to be reworked the old Fujita scale didn't take into account the types of construction and things like that the enhanced thus does take into account construction it also lowers the wind speeds needed for each rating So an F5 tornado used to be rated as 261 miles per hour to 318 miles per hour. Now an F5 is any tornado that has wind speeds above 200 miles an hour. It basically shrunk the scale down some because we weren't adequately rating these tornadoes on a proper scale. If you go back and listen to my old episodes, I say F5 or F4 or F3 way more often than I say EF5 or EF4 or EF3. It's a really bad habit of mine. I get stuck in that F whatever number. I'm sorry ahead of time. I will do my best to not do it, but if I do, I'm sorry. So let's move away from how a tornado forms and how it's rated. Let's go over the process of warning of the possibility of tornadoes. So as many of you know, there are tornado watches and tornado warnings. If you grew up in the Midwest and South, you probably already know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. A tornado watch is usually a broad swath of an area that is announced, usually a couple hours to an hour before a storm travels through that basically means, hey, be on the lookout for tornadoes. There is the possibility. The best way to describe a tornado watch is like having eggs, milk, sugar, salt, spoon, icing, etc. You have all the ingredients for a cupcake, but there isn't a cupcake yet. If you're in a tornado watch, you need to know where shelter is wherever you are. And then the next step up from a watch is a warning. A tornado warning means that a tornado or funnel cloud has either been spotted or radar rotation is showing one is imminent. So basically there is a cupcake and I am throwing it at your head. If you are in in the area of a tornado warning, you need to take cover immediately. Contrary to popular belief, a tornado warning does not mean grab a six-pack of beer and a lawn chair and park it in the front yard and watch. That is as much to me as it is to you guys. I am very guilty of that. Now, for the reason you're here. The 2011 super outbreak from April 25th to April 28th was the largest tornado outbreak in recorded history. There were 360 confirmed tornadoes. Like I said, 359 in the U.S., 1 in Ontario, Canada. The tornadoes hit 21 different states with at least 10 Tornadoes touching down in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, North Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, plus the one in Ontario. If you're familiar with U.S. geography, you'll note that these are all southern states. Basically all southern states. Which would seem unusual if you're familiar with tornado formation in the U.S. There's specifically a place called Tornado Alley in the U.S., And the main portion of that tornado alley only includes Texas from the list above. But only because Texas is so big that it really should be multiple states. But that's besides the point. This super outbreak happened outside of where conventional thinking says it should have. But why? Well, it turns out there's a second tornado alley in the U.S. It stretches from eastern Texas, across Louisiana, and all the way over to South Carolina. It mainly centers directly over Mississippi, Alabama, and parts of Georgia. This alley has a name, but I think it's a dumb name, so I'm going to call it Waffle House Alley, and you can't stop me. For those not familiar with the United States, there is a restaurant called the Waffle House that is in primarily southern states throughout the United States, and they are open no matter what. Hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, Waffle House is always open. In fact, there is a thing in disaster research called the Waffle House Index. There are three levels to the Waffle House Index. There's green, red, and yellow. Green means Waffle House is fully open, has a full menu, they're fully serving, no matter what. Yellow means they have a limited menu, which usually means they either don't have power or something like that. Red means Waffle House is closed. If Waffle House is closed, you need to turn around and... Go very far away from wherever you are because that means that things are very, 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 very bad. Anyway, moving back to Waffle House Alley. There are several differences between the two alleys. First, Tornado Alley in the Midwest tends to have their tornadoes in the afternoon and early evening. That is when the instability in the atmosphere due to the warm, humid air is greatest and allows for tornadoes to form basically only during the daylight hours. This is in stark contrast to Waffle House Alley. There, the warm, humid air and instability is able to persist overnight because of the close proximity to the Gulf of Mexico and that continuous source of warm, humid air and moisture. So tornadoes happen just as often at night as they do during the day. The other issue is, because there is so much humidity in the air... The rain accompanying these supercell storms also tends to be significantly more dense, making the tornadoes rain-wrapped and that much harder to see. And finally, the time of year that these tornadoes strike is much more varied. In traditional Tornado Alley, the peak tornado season is late April through mid-June or so. That's not how it is in Waffle House Alley. The peak tends to be from February to April, but intense tornadoes can hit that area at pretty much any time. If you combine all these factors together, that is, tornadoes that hit in the middle of the night, tornadoes that are rain-wrapped, and tornadoes that can hit when you least expect it, you end up with a deadly combination, because no one can see it. Because it's dark, it's rain-wrapped, and they were not expecting it. But that's not all. There are human factors that make Waffle House Alley much more deadly than Tornado Alley tends to be tornado alley is relatively sparsely populated. If you traveled through Nebraska, you could pretty much break the state down into Omaha and not Omaha. Oklahoma is basically Oklahoma City and absolutely nothing else. People are few and far between in the vast majority of the tornado alley states. The population density in Oklahoma is 54.7 people per square mile. Compare that to Alabama, which sits at roughly 94.4 people per square mile. Almost doubled. And then there are the construction differences. The South tends to have significantly less basements than the Midwest. There are also a ton more mobile homes in the South. Mobile homes are not a good place to be during a tornado of really any magnitude. They're not anchored to the ground. They don't weigh that much. They're usually made of relatively cheap material that will break apart pretty quickly on any high-level wind. They're just not a safe place to be during a tornado. So, if you combine all the factors from the increased humidity to the fact there are more people, to the lower amount of basements, to the higher amount of mobile homes, tornadoes in Waffle House Alley tend to be extremely deadly. let's get into the actual disaster. On the morning of Monday, April 25th, the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma, issued a wide-ranging severe weather outlook for the day. It showed a moderate risk of severe weather covering what is basically the entire state of Arkansas, with a slight risk of severe weather stretching from southwest Indiana all the way down to central Texas. The prediction for tornadoes was a 15% chance of a tornado touching down within 25 miles of any point in all of Arkansas for the day. This would turn out to be a very accurate prediction, of which I want to shout out the Storm Prediction Center because they were absolutely accurate on all of their predictions for each of the upcoming four days of tornadoes. The very first tornado that touched down from this outbreak was a small EF0 tornado that touched down near Hempstead, Arkansas, which downed a few trees. That Monday would be an early salvo of what was to come over the next several days. 42 total tornadoes would touch down on that Monday. 17 EF0s, 20 EF1s, 4 EF2s, and an EF3. That F3 touched down around Saline, Arkansas and killed one person. An F2 just outside Vilonia, Arkansas touched down around 7.30pm. This half-mile-wide tornado ripped through the town of just about 3,800 people. A tornado warning had been issued for the area about 30 minutes before the tornado actually hit the town, but unfortunately it wouldn't save everyone. The tornado headed straight for a mobile home park located within Villonia. There it caused four fatalities. One couple, David and Catherine Talley, tried to take shelter in the trailer of a semi-truck, but the tornado launched the trailer into a nearby pond, killing them. Two others would die in their mobile homes. It snapped power poles like they were twigs and destroyed the infrastructure of the town. But then came the other issue. With storms in the Waffle House Alley, flooding was common. The massive amount of humidity in the air in this area leads to flash floods on top of the tornadoes, making rescue efforts so much more difficult. The rest of the tornadoes on April 25th would cause minimal damage to houses and uproot some trees. They would knock out power to large sections of Arkansas, Texas, Kentucky, and Tennessee, but things would only get worse from there. On the morning of Tuesday, April 26th, the Storm Prediction Center would issue another severe weather outlook for the day. This one was more or less the same as the one for Monday. Arkansas covered with a moderate risk, but this time extended a bit into northern Texas, southern Oklahoma, and western Tennessee, and a bit of northern Mississippi. The 15% chance of tornadoes also covered the same area. And again, the Storm Prediction Center was absolutely accurate with their predictions. The tornadoes that occurred on the second day of the outbreak were relatively mild. There were no fatalities and only minor injuries, thankfully. The only real change was that they were spread out over the country. Tornadoes occurred in a swath from Texas all the way up to Michigan. 55 total tornadoes occurred with 31 F-0s, 19 EF-1s, 4 EF-2s, and 1 EF-3. That one EF-3 hit the Campbell Army Airfield at Fort Campbell in Kentucky and caused about a million dollars in damage. That was the most significant tornado of the day. That brings us to April 27, 2011. This was the day that really made the outbreak what it would become known for. On the morning of April 27th, the Storm Prediction Center released their daily outlook. It was, well, not a good outlook. There was a high risk for severe weather covering all of northern Alabama and northeast Mississippi, with a moderate chance of severe weather covering a huge chunk of Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, essentially all of Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Virginia. Now, I have lived in the Midwest my entire life. I have never been under a high risk for severe weather that I can remember. I've been under moderate several times, but I can probably count on my hands how many times I've actually seen a high risk for severe weather. And I tend to pay attention to weather forecasts. That's, That's a bad day. The tornado outlook, though, was probably worse. From central Alabama up to middle Tennessee, there was a 30% chance of a tornado occurring within 25 miles of a single point. And this same area had a 10% or greater probability that the tornado that occurred would be an EF2 or greater. And remember, an EF2 tornado had just killed four people just two days earlier. For basically the next 24 hours, there would be at least one tornado on the ground somewhere. There would be a whopping 216 tornadoes throughout the day. In a little less than fun fact, the next biggest super outbreak that has ever been recorded was the 1974 super outbreak. That outbreak produced 148 tornadoes. So this one has 216 tornadoes in a single day, which is also the record for most tornadoes in a 24-hour period, by far. Like, doubles the next highest amount of tornadoes in 24 hours, which would be 108 in Great Britain. Anyway, 15 of those 216 tornadoes would be EF4 or EF5 and fall under violent rating. I'm going to try to cover as many as I can, but it's simply impossible to adequately cover every single tornado and not stretch this out over like four hours. Just know that by the time the first F5 tornado touched down on the 27th, 98 tornadoes had already been recorded that day and numerous fatalities occurred. An F2 killed an individual when a tree fell on a mobile home near Matheson, Mississippi. Another EF2 caused a fatality near Coleman, Alabama. An EF-1 near Pisgah, Alabama caused a fatality. Yet another EF-1 killed a man when debris in a tree fell on the car he was driving in Tennessee. Let's start in detail with the first EF-5 that broke out during this super outbreak. The Philadelphia-Mississippi Tornado. That's Philadelphia and Mississippi, not Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and it went all the way to Mississippi. Just Philadelphia, comma Mississippi. The tornado first touched down at 2.30 p.m. just east of the Philadelphia Municipal Airport and quickly intensified to EF5 level. As it traveled through fields and past houses, the tornado ripped dirt out of the ground up to two feet down. I've seen a lot of storm and wind damage in my life. I've seen entire houses burned to nothing. I've seen bits of houses being blown apart in explosions that put the pieces three blocks away but I have never, ever seen anything like dirt being ripped out of the ground down two feet just from wind. That is, the amount of power and destructive force that would require is indescribable. It ripped clumps of grass out of the ground with the roots still attached and tossed them. Trees were literally ripped out of the ground, and had every single leaf and every single bit of bark ripped off before being thrown 60 feet through the air. This tornado continued to travel in a northeastern direction and briefly weakened to only EF-4 level, before re-strengthening to EF-5, because we can't have nice things on April 27, 2011. From there, it would continue to rip dirt out of the ground and literally yanked pavement out of the ground and tossed it. So not only is it ripping up grass that has roots, it's taking pavement, ripping that pavement out of the ground and just tossing it to the side like it's nobody's business. Once it continued traveling in nearby Kemper County, the tornado picked up a double-wide mobile home and launched it 900 feet into a tree line. To give you an idea of what that would take, A double-wide mobile home can vary in size, but the smallest is usually around 1,000 square feet. A mobile home usually weighs about 50 pounds per square foot. That means this mobile home probably weighed in the neighborhood of around 50,000 pounds. The National Weather Service made special note in their report that there were no marks on the ground between where the trailer was strapped down and where it landed. That means it was carried In the air, all 50,000 pounds of it, the entire 900 feet. It did not roll. It did not bounce. It flew through the air. Unfortunately, all three individuals in the home died with the impact. It obliterated the trailer and scattered debris even further along the tree line. This tornado would be on the ground for about 30 minutes and travel a full 29 miles. It injured eight people in addition to the three fatalities. And we've only made it to 3 p.m. Well, sort of made it to 3 p.m. Because right around the same time that first EF5 touchdown, an EF4 touchdown on the north side of Lewis Smith Lake in Alabama headed right for downtown Coleman, Alabama. This massively violent tornado traveled right through the heart of Coleman. It was literally tracked live by a local ABC Tower camera as it absolutely devastated the town of Coleman. Literally, you could see it on camera traveling through the middle of town, ripping buildings apart. You see buildings in front of it, and then when the tornado passes by, you see nothing after it. It tore brick buildings apart like they were straw. It continued a northeast track and traveled just north of Arab Alabama near Ruth, Alabama. There, it dragged a home about 450 feet before shattering it into pieces. Luckily, there was a tornado warning released before this tornado touched down. And therefore, people in the area were able to take shelter. Although, that home I just talked about that got dragged 450 feet, there were nine people huddled in the bathroom of that house. The Hallmark family had shoved everyone they could, all nine of them, into that bathroom. Only four of them would survive the tornado. 56-year-old Philip Hallmark, his 54-year-old wife Anne, 37-year-old son Shane, 31-year-old daughter-in-law Jennifer, and 17-month-old grandson Jayden all passed away. They were found in the field among the wreckage of what was left of their home. This tornado would travel 47 miles and be on the ground for over an hour, and it would only get worse from there. At 3.05 p.m., the deadliest tornado of the entire outbreak would touch down just southwest of Hamilton, Alabama. The first town struck by this tornado was Hackleburg. Yes, I said first. This one is, well, it's a pretty bad tornado. The tornado strengthened to EF5 status before entering Hackleburg and widened to about three-quarters of a mile wide. So it's big, and it's strong. The wind started to rip grass out of the ground again and was completely sweeping homes off their foundations. There weren't even walls left. It was just flat foundation. There weren't debris. It just cleaned them straight off vehicles were being tossed 600 feet without ever touching the ground it destroyed a piggly wiggly several schools and a wrangler jeans factory there were reports of jeans falling from the sky 40 miles away in Cortland, alabama that came from that jeans factory 18 people would die in hackleburg one man William Luttrell, was sucked out of his living room window with his grandson, and they both woke up in a field relatively unharmed. Many homes were so destroyed, it was impossible to determine whose house it was originally. It took days to find all of the people lost in Hackleberg. People were being sucked out of living room windows and deposited in fields several hundred feet away, only to wake up hours later, not knowing what the hell just happened. They were finding body parts and fields, and trying to piece them together to figure out who they were for a while. And this is just the first town. The next town to get hit was Phil Campbell. Yes, that is the name of the town. The town's name is Phil Campbell. Sections of pavement were ripped out of the ground and tossed a third of a mile. An underground storm shelter, a.k.a. a storm shelter that is buried under the ground, had its roof ripped off and tossed aside like it was nothing. So, not only did this tornado rip the grass and dirt off the top of this tornado shelter, it ripped the top of the tornado shelter off. And I am not sure what would be more terrifying in that situation. You have built yourself a shelter. There is a tornado warning. You get down into the tornado shelter and you're feeling relatively good about life because you're underground. And then all of a sudden... The roof is gone. What? What do you do in that situation? I, that's crazy. In one of the more improbable stories from when the tornado hit Phil Campbell, a photograph that was confirmed to come from a house in Phil Campbell was found 220 miles away in Lenoir City, Tennessee. 27 people in and around Phil Campbell died. And then, it headed to Mount Hope. It destroyed a huge portion of Mount Hope. There were five fatalities, with the youngest victim being 12-year-old Aurelia Guzman, who became trapped underneath a work van and died. There is a story that came out of Mount Hope that blows my mind, and I really want to tell you guys it. One of the local meteorologists for the ABC affiliate W.A.A.Y. in Huntsville, Gary Dobbs, was at home when the tornado headed towards his home outside Mount Hope. He was watching his co-workers on the television when they announced that a tornado was southwest of Mount Hope and heading in his general direction. Gary realized, hey, I'm going to have a really good view of the storm. So he called into the station and said, let me on air. I'll do a live report of this tornado as it comes near my house. Which, duh, the station obviously did, because how often do you get a literal live report of an EF-5 tornado? So Gary walked out his front porch and could see a wall cloud extending almost all the way down to the ground. But because of the rain and because of trees, he could see no debris field or an actual funnel. He wasn't really all that concerned. He figured it was somewhere over there, but he couldn't see it. There was lightning all around. Rain was absolutely soaking him and this man is standing in his front porch while an EF-5 tornado is heading literally right at him, but he has no idea. He can't see it because there's so much rain. He's still at the point in his mind where he barely believes that a tornado will actually hit his house. What are the odds that a tornado is going to hit the local meteorologist's house? That seems improbable. The guys at the station are on air yelling at him and begging him to go to shelter, because the radar is showing it literally right on top of him, and he's telling them, ah, don't worry, don't worry, I'm right next to the shelter, which was absolutely a lie. His shelter was on the back side of his house, he's standing on the front porch. So if he really needs to get to his shelter, he has to go through his house, his entire house, out the back door and down into the shelter, which, I might add, Gary had already put some people from the neighboring steakhouse, into his shelter when the tornado warning went, but he decided, nah, I'm going to do a live report on air of this tornado instead of, you know, hiding in the shelter. So, front porch, needs to get to shelter, back porch, if there's a tornado coming. Finally, the rain let up just a bit, and lightning flashed just right for him to be able to clearly see this massive tornado literally about 150 feet from him. By that time, it was too late. There was no way he was going to make it from the front yard to the backyard and into the shelter in time to take cover. But he doesn't know that yet. Gary is trying to literally outrun an EF-5 tornado. He gets into his house, because... Obviously, when you see a giant tornado headed at you, your first instinct is to run to the shelter. He gets inside the front door, and then he gets hit by his first brick of the day. Yes, first brick of the day. As he's attempting to get through the house back to a form of shelter, he distinctly hears his car hit the roof of the house, which has got to be the top ten most terrifying noises of all time, right? Things are really bad when you hear the car hit your roof, when you are inside your house and you hear a loud thud and realize, hey, that was my car. Cars don't go on roofs, especially when there aren't anything nearby to ramp them off of when they have been picked up by a giant tornado and placed on your roof. So he continues to run through the house because he somehow has managed not to get sucked up by this giant tornado coming at him yet, and he happens to glance behind him and sees the walls literally exploding as this tornado moves closer and closer to his house. So he makes it to his bedroom. And that's when he finally realizes that, hell, I waited too long, I'm never gonna make it to the shelter. We know, Gary. So he had a choice to make. Is he going to hide in the bathtub or is he going to hide in his closet? Gary chose the closet, which was a good choice since the bathtub was found about a mile away from his house later. Gary managed to get in the closet, get the door closed, and he was in there for, well, not that long before he was sucked out and tossed in the backyard. And then he got hit by some bricks. And then he got hit by some more bricks. And then he got hit by his washing machine. And I know what you're thinking, how kind of the tornado to make sure he got a wash. But the tornado wasn't done being kind, because then it hit him with the dryer. It wanted to make sure his clothes were nice and dry. And then, he got hit by some more bricks. Eventually, Gary would crawl out from under the pile of debris with bruised ribs, a gash on his arm, and an absolutely bewildering story to tell. And while I was doing the research for this, the article I was reading that Gary told the story was he wanted to let everyone know that it hurts a lot more to get hit by the washing machine than it does the dryer. And having moved many times in my life, I can absolutely test for this because washers weigh a buttload more than dryers do. So if I have to choose being hit by a washer, or being hit by a dryer, flying through the air, being thrown at me by a tornado that has at least 200 miles, an hour, miles per hour wind... I'm going to pick the dryer, although I don't really want to be near an EF-5 tornado at all, so that's that. When the tornado finally dissipated at 5.40pm, that EF-5 traveled 132 miles in total, all the way into Tennessee, and was on the ground for two and a half hours. 72 fatalities occurred in the path of this tornado, which made it the most deadly tornado since a 1955 tornado in Udall Kansas. Unfortunately, this record would barely last a month before an EF-5 tornado in Missouri essentially wiped the town of Joplin off the map. This tornado caused $1.3 billion in damage. We're going to have to go back in time here a little bit. Because during that last tornado, yet another EF5 touchdown. Like I said, there were always a tornado on the ground for some portion of this entire day. And a lot of them were very, very, very bad. This EF5 down at 3.47 p.m., just a few miles southwest of Smithville, Mississippi. The tornado quickly strengthened to EF5 status before absolutely annihilating Smithville. Now, some houses in Smithville had been built with tornadoes in mind. They were anchor bolted to their concrete foundations. This was supposed to prevent tornadoes from ripping houses off their foundations. Unfortunately, this only works to a point, and when an EF-5 with wind speeds of about 205 miles per hour comes right at your house, there isn't much that's going to remain. And that's what happened in Smithville. But it's not what you think. You think, hey... It'll shear the bolts off at the connection point where the bolt and the concrete meet because the bolts sink up several inches into the concrete and then the foundation is bolted down to that to make it more powerful. So, in a normal situation, when something breaks, it would shear off at that tension point where the concrete, the bolt sticks up out of the concrete and connects to the actual foundation. But, uh... That would be wrong, because it didn't shear the bolts off. It ripped the bolts out of the concrete with chunks of concrete still attached. That is doing the most. That is Skywalker-level dramatic. It was ripping concrete out of concrete. There aren't even failure points in concrete, usually. The failure point should be the bolt. The failure point should not be in the middle of the concrete. That is some Gandalf-level, absolute dramatic, falling-down-with-a-Bowrog-screaming insanity. But that's not all. This tornado would pick up a Ford Explorer and launch it through the air at least a half mile into a water tower, denting it. It dented the water tower, that is. And I know what you're thinking. So what? It hit a water tower. It didn't hit the side of the water tower. It hit the top of the water tower. The part that says Smithville, and where they always have the town pain, name painted on the side of it, it hit the top of that and dented that. And then, it threw the Ford Explorer, another quarter mile, and crumpled it into a tiny ball. It then would pick up a 1965 Chevy pickup truck, and they never found the truck. Still, to this day, have not found where that 1965 pickup truck went. It is still gone. It probably ended up in a lake somewhere, because... You don't just lose an entire truck. But seriously, how do you make an entire truck just disappear? That's some crazy level of strength. So obviously this tornado was sweeping houses away and completely cleaning foundations off, so all that was left was the flooring for the foundation between the concrete or whatever was left. But this tornado wouldn't just, you know, clean all of the floors off and take all the walls off and all that kind of stuff and take the roof away and blow it away no 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 this one decided to take it up a level this one ripped tile off of the ground floor of houses so it wasn't just you know cleaning the, the walls off it was taking the tile that was glued to the ground off with it Somewhere between 16 and 23 people died during this tornado. The sources can't seem to decide on a number. This tornado was on the ground for about 45 minutes and traveled 37 miles. It got to be about three quarters of a mile wide at its widest point. It was the first EF-5 in Mississippi since 1966. All right, so let's go back over to Alabama, where yet another super violent tornado is about to touch down. This one was an EF-4 right outside Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which you'll note is the home of University of Alabama. This massive twister slammed into the south side of Tuscaloosa and leveled homes and buildings. The Tuscaloosa County Emergency Management building was completely destroyed. As it traveled out of Tuscaloosa, the twister stretched from a half mile wide to a full mile wide. So even if you did want to try and run out of the way of this tornado you're going to have to run at least half a mile just to get out of the direct path of it. And that's not including any debris or anything it throws at you if you do manage to get past it. Once it got into the rural area outside of Tuscaloosa it lifted up a 34 ton railroad trestle and tossed it about 100 feet up a hill. So that is the bridge that goes over creeks, is a railroad trestle. It broke the railroad off, picked the trestle up, and tossed it a 100 feet uphill. Not just to the side, it didn't just, you know, lift it and move it. It picked it up and carried it up a hill and placed it back on the ground. It then continued to travel through that rural area where it struck a coal yard. There, it lifted a 36-ton empty coal car and tossed it a ridiculous 360 or so feet through the air. It did not drag. It did not bounce. It picked it up, and it tossed it. After this, the tornado would travel for a bit longer, but at much lower strength. It dissipated at about 6.15 p.m., after having traveled some 80 miles and killing 64 people in and around Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. This supercell storm would then produce another EF-4 tornado in the Shoal Creek Valley area, traveling all the way into Georgia, and kill 22 more people. The final EF-5 of the super outbreak touched down at 6.20pm just north of Geraldine, Alabama. For the first portion of its existence... The tornado was only about 150 feet wide, which sounds like a lot, but in tornado terms isn't really that big. That would soon change, though, as it would grow to be about a half mile wide. As it traveled through the town of Rainesville, it ripped dirt out of the ground, ripped a concrete porch out of the ground, and broke it in half, and then deposited it several hundred feet away. These tornadoes really liked ripping dirt out of the ground, It's, like, there's ground scouring where it's kind of, the ground's kind of scoured, it's picked up. But two feet down is insane. Anyway, it also mangled vehicles into unrecognizable balls of twisted metal. The tornado picked up a school bus and ripped everything off of it, leaving only the chassis. And I'm not talking, like, it ripped the top half of it, like it peeled the roof off. No, 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 no. Every seat was gone. All of the top covering of the school bus. So the windows, the doors, everything was gone. The only thing recognizable that it was a school bus was the front grill was a little bit left with a little bit of yellow on it. It was literally just the chassis. I do not really want to think about how much energy and destruction that would take because that is... Hard to imagine. But this tornado wasn't done. Not by a long shot. Some Rainsville residents were taking shelter in an underground storm shelter. But as the tornado passed over, it ripped the dirt off the roof of the shelter and actually started to lift the entire shelter out of the ground. Now, this wasn't like the other one where it, you know, ripped the dirt up and then it ripped the roof off. This was picking up the entire shelter. The entire thing with people in it. That is... I can't imagine a more terrifying situation where you think you are safe underground and then the tornado comes directly over you and it decides, ah, shelter smelter, I'm going to pick the entire thing up with you in it. Luckily, it did not, but still, horrifying. One Rainesville resident, Sonia Mann, hid in her bathroom with seven un- other people, including her son and seven-month-old granddaughter. Sonia had opened her home to some teenagers driving by to give them some shelter from the coming Twister. They all huddled in the bathroom closet, hoping to survive. Sonia said the last thing she saw before she closed the bathroom door was the roof being torn off of her house. All eight people in the closet would thankfully live. This tornado would end up traveling all the way into Georgia before dissipating around 6.55 p.m. The twister traveled about 36 miles and killed 25 people. The storm produced this EF-5 would go on to produce an EF-4 in Georgia. About 20 minutes later, they would kill another 20 people throughout Georgia and Tennessee. Tornadoes would continue to touch down throughout Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee throughout the night into the morning of April 28th. There would be 47 more tornadoes on April 28th, with an EF3 causing three deaths in Virginia. 324 people lost their lives during this tragedy. Untold numbers were injured. The total distance that all the tornadoes that touched down during this outbreak traveled was approximately 3,200 miles. So if you lined up all of those tornadoes, tracks end to end, it would basically go from Portland, Maine to San Francisco, California. The search and rescue that had to be undertaken to respond to these tornadoes is really hard to adequately describe. Many towns had hundreds of houses that needed to be searched. Cars with potential victims were crushed into balls or wrapped around trees or launched into homes or in lakes, upside down, everywhere whole houses were completely swept away you really didn't know where anyone could be located i mean how many stories do we have of people being sucked out of their houses and being found in fields nearby you didn't know where anyone could be there could be someone in the house that you're searching there could not they could be unconscious they could be trapped under the debris you don't know and not only do you not know you don't really have a way to get everywhere Power's down, there's power lines across everywhere, there are trees laying everywhere, roads are blocked, roads are flooded. Trying to do search and rescue in this situation is an absolute nightmare. And at the point when they're trying to do search and rescue, there are still tornadoes touching down all around them. There are numerous stories of people going to do search and rescue in houses and then having to back out because there's another tornado coming at them. It was an impossible situation for first responders. They didn't have access to communication tools. Cell phones were down. Power was down. It's just crazy. Luckily, and unluckily, these storms pretty much happened during the day. So people were awake, so they knew they were coming, but they were also at work or sometimes at school. So if you came upon a house, you didn't know if the people in that house were going to be in there or if they were at work. Or if you went to search a workplace, you didn't know if anybody was going to be there because maybe they let them out early because they knew the storms were coming. It was really hard to search down missing people because nobody knew where anyone was and there was no way to get a hold of anybody. The search and rescue people for this situation deserve a ton of credit because they had basically an entire deck stacked against them and they still went out and did their jobs and they did them well. And I want to shout out another people who are often ignored or outright ridiculed that would be some of the biggest heroes of the entire four-day ordeal. Local meteorologists. Many were pulling all-day shifts on TV all day long with no rest to make sure warnings went out when they needed to. Some meteorologists were reporting on where tornadoes were while their homes were being threatened by tornadoes or not knowing if their homes were still standing. We had one meteorologist literally giving a live report as a tornado was headed right at him. Some weather stations were still reporting on where tornadoes were and releasing warnings while they were taking shelter in their buildings because there were tornadoes headed at them. They spent all day looking at numbers, looking at data, and trying to relay that information to the public. And they did a marvelous job of it. The average warning time for each tornado in this outbreak All 360 of them was 21 minutes. That is plenty of time to be able to get to shelter in a place that you can maybe ride out this tornado. Had it not been for meteorologists and the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma, there would have been a lot more deaths. Now, I know there were a lot of deaths in this tornado, but... It was inevitable with the strength of these, some of these tornadoes. These meteorologists put it all on the line, and they absolutely 100% saved lives over these four days, without a doubt. It is unlikely, not impossible, unlikely, we will ever see a combination of meteorological ingredients to produce the outbreak we saw in 2011 for at least a while. Everything came together perfectly to create a perfect situation for a massive disaster. The combination of high wind shear, a low-pressure system sitting over Kentucky, the daytime temperatures reaching 80 degrees, and the dew point between 66 and 72 degrees led to crazy atmospheric instability and CAPE values of 2,500 to 3,000. If you recall, a dew point between 66 and 72 degrees is like swimming through the air, and CAPE values of 2,500 to 3,000 tend to mean you're about to have a bad day, storm-wise. There's also a parameter called STP that meteorologists tend to use. It's used to gauge how likely a tornado is. It stands for Significant Tornado Parameter. It combines the CAPE value, the amount of potential energy in the atmosphere, lifted condensation level, basically the height of the base of cloud cover, ESRH, the effective storm relative helicity, which is basically the level of rotation that could occur, wind shear, so the change in direction of wind as you travel higher in the atmosphere, and convective inhibition, the opposite of CAPE, so not instability in the atmosphere. These are all math together in a relatively complicated equation, and it spits out a number. If it spits out anything near one, it is likely that there will be a significant tornado or two. Not 100% certain, but likely. The numbers the formula spit out on April 27th for most of northern Mississippi and Alabama were between 10 and 12. I'm not qualified to give an explanation for exactly what that means scientifically, but I think an adequate explanation is that means you're about to have a day similar to that cow and twister that gets back-and-forth between tornadoes. So, to sum up this week's episode, the 2011 super outbreak was unprecedented and may never be topped in scale, intensity, or destruction. Hopefully. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Disastrous history. So, disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, so history without the vowels on Twitter, or on Instagram, disastrous history, spelled correctly. If you would like to let me know how I'm doing, or if you have suggestions, you can email me at disastroushistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Just generally let me know how I'm doing, what you would like to see, what you like, what you don't like. I am always open for suggestions hope you guys have a safe week and always remember to check your smoke detector batteries